Let me start with a story. Manolka Sen had chosen the inner city of Sydney for her wedding photo shoot, but she was a little hesitant. It was Saturday the 20th of December 2014, and during the week a lone gunman brandishing an Islamic flag had taken 18 people hostage inside the Lint Cafe in Martin Place. After a lengthy standoff and a final gunfight, two people were left dead. And in the wake of the Lint Cafe siege, Manol Qasem feared she'd be judged. She was a Muslim bride from Punchbowl in Sydney's west, and she'd be wearing a white hijab at her wedding and her inner-city photo shoot. But after thinking about it, she decided not to cancel or relocate the big day. She decided instead to offer a gesture of respect to the country in which she hoped to raise her children. As soon as the wedding ceremony finished, she and her groom ventured to the Martin Place Memorial, where she laid her wedding bouquet alongside the other floral tributes. As one bystander wrote, the crowd, who at first were standing and turning their heads at the wedding party approached, applauded as she laid the flowers down. Overwhelming and very touching. And in that moment, Martin Place, not long earlier, the site of one of Sydney's greatest tragedies, seemed to transform into a symbol of our connectedness. A multicultural Australia was united to mourn the collective loss. Was this scene unusual? Are we always this connected? Do we have a sense of civic community that goes beyond our ability to draw on civic connectedness at times of tragedy or triumph? Can we build social capital in moments of trivial? Now, before I discuss how much social capital has declined, it's useful to briefly define what I mean by social capital. Social capital is a, the notion that the networks of trust and reciprocity that link multiple individuals has a value. Economists have long recognised that physical capital, bridges, roads, uh, houses, has an economic value. In the 1960s, a debate between the two Cambridges, the American Cambridge and the British Cambridge, ended with uh, victory for those who argued that human capital ought to be similarly recognised. That the knowledge and skills that people had could be just as valued as their physical assets. And then, in the early 2000s, came the notion of social capital. The idea that markets work better where there are thick networks of trust. That it's actually incredibly expensive to do commerce in a capitalist system if you don't trust the person you're trading with. If you and I want to write down a contract to buy and sell diamonds, it will take us a very long time if we have to set out every possible way in which one of us could rip off the other. But if we trust one another, we can do commerce with a handshake. Of course, social capital has other manifestations too. You get the bonds of friendship between neighbours, between members of a cricket team, the cooperation between co-workers that makes for an effective workplace. And just like physical capital and human capital, social capital can be used for ill as well as for good. Just as social capital underlines effective workplaces or sporting teams, so too criminal gangs are linked together through their social capital. 
we shouldn't be surprised that just as they use human and physical capital for nefarious purposes, so too they can use human capital for uh, nefarious purposes. I don't think that undermines the notion of social capital at all. Uh, but it's worth noting that while social capital is generally good, it's not definitionally good. And the final thing worth noting is it can be split into two concepts, bridging social capital and bonding social capital. Bonding social capital joins together people of similar race, ethnicity or income. Bridging social capital transcends differences. In 2010, as Peter's kindly mentioned, I published Disconnected, which took stock of the state of community life in Australia since the 1960s. When I was a doctoral student at Harvard, I'd worked as part of the research team of Robert Putnam, uh, who'd then just finished writing uh, Bowling Alone, and was working on new manifestations of social capital. In Bowling Alone, Putnam had shown that social capital in the United States had declined from about the 1960s through to 2000s, after rising through the first half of the 20th century. As I sat in Boston and worked my way through Putnam's terrific time, I couldn't help thinking what had happened in Australia. And so, a bit like a bowbird, I set about collecting a pastiche of evidence as to what had happened with Australian community life. I surveyed community organisations and asked them for their membership figures. I hunted through dusty tomes to find out what we could learn about church going and union membership. I went back through old surveys uh, to see uh, what uh, we knew about the share of Australians who were joining organisations or to the number of friends and neighbours that people knew. At a risk of diminishing your appetite for the full story, uh, here's the short answer. Australia in the post-war era was a nation of joiners. We knew the names of our local baker and butcher. Half of us attended a religious service at least monthly, and many went weekly. Many Australians were members of local community clubs, of trade unions, who were connected to a local community which they tended to live in throughout their lives. In short, the level of social capital was high. And there's little doubt that since then we've experienced a decline. On most measures, Australians are less connected to each other now than at any point in the post-war era. And that might seem intuitive to many Australians. If you're not part of a local group, if you never dog sit for your neighbours, if you don't occasionally congratulate or condemn one of your local politicians face to face, you might already feel like your social links are weaker than those of prior generations. But the data paint a picture of precisely what's occurred. Let me give you a few of those numbers. In 1967, the number of Australians who were active members of an organisation was 33%. Now it's fallen to just 18%. And interestingly, there's fewer organisations to join. The number of community organisations for every 10,000 Australian adults was seven in the late 1970s, and it dropped to just three by the 2010s. Volunteering rates, a little harder to track over time, but my read of the evidence is that while there was a rise in volunteering uh, around the time of the Sydney 2000 Olympics, uh, the level has since dropped off. 
and was most, is most likely now lower than it was in the 1950s. The share of Australians who donate money to charity appears to have dropped, or at best, flatlined since the mid-1980s. Interestingly, the number of dollars being donated is going up, but that's largely a function of inequality, of those at the very top of the distribution donating more money. If you look at the share of Australians who are givers, that figure doesn't appear to be rising. Another important form of social capital is attendance at religious services, such as churches or synagogues, mosques and temples. In the 1950s, 35% of Australian adults attended a religious service at least weekly. Now, only 13% of Australians attend a religious service on a weekly basis. Now, your first inclination might be to say, well, that's because people don't believe anymore. We're a nation where agnosticism or atheism is far more common than it once was. But you can actually break these two down, thanks to the National Church Life Surveys, and look at the extent to which the decline in religious attendance is due to unbelief compared to believers not attending. And it turns out that the latter is far more important. Just to give you one simple metric, we've now passed the point at which the number of children in Australian Catholic schools is larger than the number of people who attend Catholic Mass on a Sunday. Think about that for a moment. You're meant to attend school for a dozen or so years and Mass for the rest of your life. That suggests that the vast majority of those who are going through Catholic schools are not regular Mass attendees. So the increase in what's known as nominalism appears to have, to, to have been behind the drop in religious attendance. Australians are also less politically engaged. And we see this at the pointy end of politics and in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the, the most basic participation measures. Looking first at the pointy end, in the early 1950s, my party, the Labor Party, uh, had 1.2% of the adult population as members. Now that's down to about a quarter of its level, something in the order of 0.3% of Australian adults are members of the Labor Party. Similarly, the Liberal Party used to be able to boast 1.5% of Australian adults as members, now down below half a percent. And we've seen in the uh, voter turnout figures a significant decline in the share of Australians who cast a valid vote. By valid vote, I mean two things. You have to turn up to the polling booth and not spoil your ballot paper. On that measure, the share of Australians casting a valid vote is as low today as at any time since compulsory voting was, uh, was first introduced in 1924. We've also seen decline in the share of Australians who are members of a trade union. From all the way through 1914 to 1990, at least four in ten workers were members of a union. Uh, and in the early 1980s, that figure was up to half when Bob Hawke became Prime Minister. We now have a situation where less than one in seven Australians are members of a union. Their place has been taken by things such as employee assistance lines, telephone support services where people can go if they have difficulties with a boss or with a co-worker. The trouble is 
the telephone support lines don't help someone on their first day get to know the people in the next cubicle. Telephone support lines don't organise the game of lunchtime soccer. Telephone support lines don't organise the, uh, the barbecues. And so that role of providing social glue in the workplace that trade unions have traditionally played has been undermined by a significant drop-off uh, in union membership. Then there's uh, engagement in sport, culture and entertainment. Australians have long prided ourselves on our sporting prowess, uh, but the share of us who are active members of team sports <coughs> has dropped significantly. In 1993, a third of Australians told the Bureau of Statistics they'd played an organised sport in the previous 12 months. That's now fallen by at least six percentage points. It's also true that engagement in cultural activities has dropped. Art gallery attendance is down two percentage points. Museum going, down eight percentage points. The share of people visiting botanic gardens, down five percentage points. If you really don't like being around other people, museums, art galleries and botanic gardens are a better place to go than they've ever been before. <laughs> and then there's informal socialising. The share of us who know our friends and neighbours. And to look at this, I identified a survey conducted in 1984 and then had two different polling firms re-administer the survey once in the early 2000s uh, and again last year. And I'll show you the results in this chart here. So this is looking... Oh, I appear to have sliced off the top of the graph. Anyway, I'll tell you about the first graph and then we can, uh, th then we can move on to the bit that you can see. Uh, so this is four questions, the first two, first two of which ask about neighbourly attendance uh, and the second two focus on friendships. Uh, the green bar uh, is 1984. Uh, the red bar, 2005, the blue bar, 2018. We start with the number of people who say that... Uh, do, the number of people who someone could turn to in their local neighbourhood in a time of difficulty. Uh, on this measure, Australians in 1984 said that they could turn to about five people in their local neighbourhood in a time of difficulty. By 2018, that was down to just three people. We'd lost two neighbours we could draw upon uh, in times of trial. Another way of, getting to, of looking at how many neighbours we know is the question, how many people are there living around here from whom you could easily ask small favours? Uh, that figure in 1984 uh, was around seven and has fallen to around four now. So there's three fewer close neighbours the average Australian says they have. Then we have questions that look at uh, our engagement with our friends. The first of these, how many friends do you have in the area who you could visit any time without waiting for an invitation? Back in 1984, the typical Australian said that there were 10 people who they could drop in on without an invitation. By 2018, they said they were just four. A drop in six close, of, of six close friends over this period. And then the question, I think my favourite of these four, among your friends and family, how many people are there easily available 
who you could talk with frankly without having to watch what you say. Friends you could share a confidence with. In 1984, the average Australian had nine people with whom they could share a confidence. Now we're down to five. So, much like the change in our knowledge of our neighbours, we have fewer close friends than we did a generation ago. The average Australian has shared two or three close neighbours and five or six close friends. That is a massive hit to our social capital. You know, just imagine if we were looking at this in terms of physical capital. This would be the equivalent of saying that we've gotten rid of half our physical capital. That the average Australian is now in a house half the size or has half the, half the money that they used to. Imagine if we were looking at this in terms of our human capital. We'd be saying the average Australian has half as much schooling as they used to have. Back then we were going to university, now we're not finishing high school. That's the equivalent of the hit to our social capital in terms of our informal friendship networks. To go from having nine or ten close friends to having a mere four or five close friends. Unlike Robert Putnam, I believe that television explains part of the decline which implies that since the 1980s, Australians have replaced friends with friends and neighbours with neighbours. One of the central challenges of the drop in social capital is that the factors driving it aren't things where we can easily turn the clock back. I mentioned television, but of course we've had the rise of video gaming and the internet. Impersonal technology, such as the fact we tend to get our money from an ATM rather than speaking to a bank teller. We tend to use the self-served lines in the, in the grocery checkout rather than speaking to a human being. Those things have reduced social capital in Australia, but they've also increased efficiency. We're more likely to engage in car commuting, which means uh, that, uh, that Australians are better able to, to get to work. But they spend more time on their own in a metal box. Virginia Woolf wrote about the importance of a room of one's own. And Australians are more likely to be living alone than ever before. That's meant a rise in autonomy and people having the, the, the personal spaces they want. But again, it's reduced social capital. And we've seen, if we go back to the 1960s, one of the most important developments in Australia which is a significant drop in gender pay discrimination. We got rid of the uh, legal gender pay discrimination uh, through the 1967 and 1971 uh, changes to gender, gender pay discrimination. And the gender pay, gender pay gap is glacially slowing. We've had increased attention on issues such as sexual harassment and childcare over recent years, which have meant that the share of women in the paid workforce has increased markedly. But given that women have always been overrepresented in community organisations, it shouldn't be that surprising that as gender pay discrimination fell, we've also seen many of the organisations that were staffed by women working in unpaid roles struggling to find alternative volunteers. That doesn't mean we want to go back to the gender, more gender discriminatory world of the 1950s, 
But it means we need to find new and creative ways of building social capital uh, in an era in which we're using more of the talents of Australians in the paid workforce. We've also seen an increase in ethnic diversity in Australia, a, ro a role which, uh, or a development which I think has been enormously positive to Australia. Mass migration has been one of the core drivers of economic activity, but more than that, I think it's just made Australia a more interesting and vibrant place. And yet we know from a whole host of studies around the world that our initial inclination as human beings in the face of diversity is to hunker down, to do what turtles do and put our heads back into our shells. We have evidence from uh, the US Civil War uh, Corps, from American cities, from Kenyan uh, communities, and indeed my own work looking across Australian postcodes, that the initial in, uh, impact of ethnic diversity is to cause a decline in civic connectedness. So it shouldn't have surprised us that as Australia has become more ethnically diverse, as we've taken in a relatively large share of migrants compared to other advanced countries, that this has had an impact on social capital. Again, we don't want to go back to the crazy old world of white Australia, but we need to look at creative ways of building social capital uh, in an environment in which Australia uh, has the talents of people from around the world contributing to our economy. So we shouldn't be throwing away our cars and our iPhones, returning to white Australia and discriminatory rates of pay. But that then means we need to think smarter about rebuilding social capital. Not about returning to a less socially enlightened era, but how to combine the benefits of a modern economy with a stronger sense of civic life, a stronger sense of we rather than I. And we have to do this in the face of the most serious social capital crisis that we've seen in Australia's history, in which we've had this decline in church-going union membership, a decline in the share of Australians involved in organisations from the Scouts to the Guides, Rotary, Lions and the RSL. And in Australia in which we've seen a decline in the share of people who report close friendships and good relationships with their neighbours. So what can we do about it? Since publishing Disconnected as an academic, I've had the pleasure of moving into politics and since 2013 been responsible for charities on my side of politics. Part of that has involved holding the government to account, which is a role of opposition in the Westminster system. Uh, we've worked to, with the charity sector to save the Charities Commission, uh, which was opposed by the conservative side of politics all the way from 2011 to 2016. We've worked with the uh, Justice Connect and other community groups on the fixed fundraising campaign to try and get rid of the patchwork of state and territory laws that currently govern fundraising. We've worked through the six different people who've been responsible for charities on the other, si other side of the political aisle to try and ensure that the coalition takes a more positive approach to charities, not the war on charities that has seen two open letters to the Prime Minister complaining about attacks on advocacy among social services charities, environmental charities, charities working in the law sector. We've consistently argued that charities have a role in the Australian public debate. Uh, that charities' role is, is not simply to be seen and not heard. Uh, that charities that are planting trees 
have an important voice in the conversation around deforestation. Charities that are serving in soup kitchens should be contributing to our public conversation around inequality and poverty. Uh, that charities and not-for-profits that are working to help people on the front lines of legal disadvantage ought to be heard in debates around law reform. I'm not that surprised when Pro Bono Australia reports that two out of three Australian charities say it's harder to have their voices heard now than it was in 2013. And just recently we were working with the Hands Off Our Charities Alliance to ensure that charities weren't dragged into the net of uh, the ban on foreign political donations, uh, prevent, which would have prevented a lot of our internationally engaged charities from doing proper issue advocacy. All of that work is the important work of an opposition. But there's been another piece we've been doing alongside it, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. As the relevant uh, Shadow Minister and now Shadow Assistant Minister, I've been working on putting together a series of reconnected forums around Australia. Uh, we've held 17 of these reconnected forums uh, in uh, every, everywhere from Perth to Adelaide to Darwin. Uh, we've held them in Newcastle and we've held them in the north of Tasmania. Uh, we've met with over 1,500 charity sector leaders and I've had the great opportunity to collaborate with a whole range of my uh, parliamentary colleagues. And the aim of these forums is to draw out what, community, what, what some of our best charities are doing which other not-for-profits might learn from. And I want to share a few of those, a few of those ideas with you today. Here in the ACT, Greening Australia organises singles tree planting events. So if things go well, you can plant a new tree and meet the love of your life. And if things don't go well, at the very least, you've helped the environment. Park Run, which is a free five kilometre event run at 8am on Saturday mornings, has sprung up in hundreds of Australian communities. They operate a very simple and straightforward model. It's always free, it's always 8am, unless you're in Darwin. Uh, it always is five, five kilometres. And that model has seen a whole lot of people get together, not just to stay fit, but also to enjoy a cup of coffee with friends and neighbours afterwards. And one of the things that Parkrun has been focused on is ensuring that volunteers do what they're there to do, that they're there organising an event but spending as little time as possible on activities that aren't their comparative advantage, uh, such as having to raise, raise funds from local businesses. Giveit has bu uh, built a virtual warehouse, allowing unwanted items uh, to be donated to charity without having to go via a dusty shed. Uh, so if you've got a washing machine or a laptop, uh, Giveit is able to match up donors and recipients. Uh, in order to ensure that more of these goods are put to, put to positive use. We've also seen a rise of so-called pop-up events, uh, pop-up book depositories in the community. And indeed, at the end of my street, uh, one of our neighbours has taken an old bar fridge, uh, which, as you know, are uh, terrible for the environment. They use uh, extraordinary amounts of energy uh, and has repurposed it uh, as a little book library. Uh, so it just sits at the end of the street, a little sign on it saying, take a, take a book, leave a book. Uh, we've also seen uh, the repurposing of formal libraries as community spaces. 
We've got the Heart Foundation organising local walking groups, building social capital and making us healthier at the same time. When we were in Newcastle, we met with Hunter Intrepid Landcare, which has put together kayaking tours through local waterways in which participants engage in the remediation of the riverbanks. Again, helping the environment and staying fit at the same time. We've seen the growth of TEDx talks, spontaneous community organised talks that are fueling a sense of connection and inspiring communities with new ideas. Given our population, Australia has hosted six times as many of these community TEDx talks as Australia's population would lead you to expect. When I was up in Brisbane, I met with Orange Sky Laundry, whose mobile vans uh, let people who are sleeping rough get their clothes washed. But Orange Sky is set up not simply to wash clothes, but to bring people in for a conversation. An essential part of the Orange Sky Laundry model is the fold-out chairs that are always there for someone to sit down in and have a, have a chat with the local volunteers. Uh, people, Peter mentioned uh, street parties before, uh, and uh, I have to let you into a secret. If you don't organise a street party for your local street, you absolutely should. It is ridiculously easy. Here's how Gwyneth and I organise our local street party. It gets to the start of December, we pull out last year's street party invitation, we change the date, hit print 25 times, get one of the kids to letterbox it down the street, and we are done. A couple of weeks later, all our neighbours drop over to our place. Uh, we've left the acronym BYO on the invitation, so they've come, with, they've come with food and drink. We spend two hours catching up with people whose company we quite enjoy. But this would be worth doing even if we hated our neighbours. Why not spend two hours a year with people you hate in order to ensure that your home is far less likely to be, be robbed? After all, if there's a stranger walking out the front door carrying your television, who is more likely to challenge them? Someone who came to your house for a street party the previous year or someone who didn't? A street party is a far more effective way of preventing your house being broken in than the most sophisticated alarm system you could put together. Plus, it's free, plus it's probably going to be fun. Organise your street party this year. Now, of course, I call the street party, but we don't actually do it on the street. Uh, in most places in Australia, it turns out to be somewhat too complicated to shut down the street, um, an issue that I will uh, leave, uh, leave in the hands of uh, any local government representatives who are here at the moment. So there's some of the things that are going, going on which I think have opportunity to spark a civic renaissance. One of the interesting themes that's come out of the reconnected forums is this idea of multiple purpose activities. Uh, think about uh, Greening Australia's singles tree planting events or Hunter Intrepid Landcare's Waterways event. I think people are looking for opportunities to do two things at the same time. I've also sensed that many of the most successful charities and not-for-profits are creating opportunities for people to volunteer on a shorter time frame, uh, to allow one-off one events uh, in which people are able to go in and be productive immediately without necessarily making a lifetime commitment. Uh, and that matters in a time in which Australians feel more time crunched than ever. 
Uh, we're working on bringing together a lot of these reconnected ideas. So if you've got ideas you're keen to share, uh, please get in touch. I'm pretty easy to find via the modestly named andrewlee.com web website. Um, love to know any ideas that you're putting into place that you think other organisations could learn from. So to conclude, when I think about my teens and 20s, those volunteering memories loom large. Time working with the Australian Trust for Conservation Volunteers, building tracks in Lane Cove and Nowra. Uh, the days when I dressed up as a clown, uh, clown suit in Hornsby Shopping Centre to try and sell juggling balls to unsuspecting passers-by to raise money for Oxfam. Uh, working in Redfern Legal Centre and here in the ACT Welfare Rights Centre, uh, assisting those uh, who needed legal advice but could, couldn't afford it. And now, as the father of three little boys, I can attest that my boys are simply nicer kids when they're doing something for other people. Uh, we organise local park clean-ups and then put on a barbecue uh, on, on a regular basis. Uh, and I'll take one of my uh, boys along. Uh, you may or may not be able to see them in this picture. They tend to hide when they're in group shots. Uh, but it's a terrific way uh, of getting them to think about something beyond themselves. Uh, it's a terrific way for my little boys uh, of building a sense of character. And that brings me to my final point. It is true that government plays a role in social capital, that how we design our cities, how we run our local, state and federal programs, how we deliver social assistance, all of those things shape bridging social capital and bonding social capital. But fundamentally, government isn't the chief destroyer of social capital and government won't be the chief rebuilder of social capital. Rebuilding social capital is primarily the job for all of us. Uh, it's a job for people power. There's a story about George Orwell and how he approached the writings of Charles Dickens. Orwell wrote, wrote that early in his life, when he read Dickens' novels, he read them with a real sense of frustration. He felt that Dickens was describing a serious problem, deep poverty, for which he had no systematic response. He would look at those struggling in factories and struggling to get by, and he wouldn't have a systematic government response to deal with the problems of 19th century poverty in industrialising England. All he had was tales of good and not so good people, tales of character. And then Orwell said as he got, toward, got, got to be older, he, went, he formed an entirely different view of Dickens. He went back and read Dickens and he felt that Dickens had captured the essential challenge, that it was fundamentally about character, that so many of the social challenges that we face uh, are not just about setting up good systems, uh, they're about ensuring that we do good in our own personal lives. That like Peter, we buy two cups of coffee and look out to see who might get the next one. That we're there organising local events in our communities and looking for opportunities to reach out to an older person who might just need someone to drop in and say, uh, say day. That we're learning from one another in a vibrant, organic way, recognising that government can be a terrific partner 
but that in rebuilding social capital, it's not someone else's job. It's a job for all of us. Thanks very much. <laughs>